So happy 4th of July week. Um, be careful with your fireworks this week. I don't want to have to visit anybody in the hospital. I don't want to hear of any lost limbs or anything like that. Uh, it is 4th of July week. Um, we are also, on an unrelated note, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of um, this morning. We should have involved fireworks somehow with that, but we're not going to do that. Uh, just thankful you all are here today. We are in the book of Psalms, the summer in the Psalms. We are in week number five of this series. Uh, the Psalms uh, are a collection of 100 50 old Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers uh, collected in the scriptures. It's the word of God. Um, there are, we've been referencing over the last few weeks, these seven categories that we've been using uh, from everypsalm.com, uh, seven categories of psalms, uh, psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, uh, psalms of, like we saw last week, psalms of confidence. This morning we'll be looking at psalms of kingship. And we also have psalms of remembrance and psalms of wisdom. Now, those categories aren't biblical per se. Uh, there's not a universally agreed upon like, way to organize or to structure the psalms. But I think these are, uh, this is a helpful framework for us, especially, I think, in terms of helping us to have language uh, in our own prayers and our own cries to the Lord. And what we see, and maybe you've noticed this if you've been reading along with us this summer in the psalms, is that there's a lot of overlap. Like if you're reading through this and you're trying to go, okay, is this a psalm of praise or is this a psalm of confidence? Well, there's a good chance that it in incorporates multiple elements, all right? Even this morning, we'll look at psalms of kingship. We'll see some, uh, some notes of confidence in the Lord, some praise in there as well. So there's a lot of overlap within, these, uh, within each of these psalms. So this morning, like I said, we're going to be talking about a psalm of kingship. And we'll be looking at Psalm 95. And so you can begin to turn there. We'll be there in just a few minutes. A psalm of kingship. So let me read, uh, as again we've been doing these last few weeks, the definition from the Every Psalm Project. Defining a psalm of kingship. Psalms of kingship represent the king or a king as the major focus. This can be directed at a humanly king or God as the heavenly king of all creation. So I think this is interesting when you start to think about this. If, you, if you're reading through the Psalms, you'll notice that many Psalms are written by a king, right? King David, who was uh, greatest king in the history of Israel, he wrote about half of the Psalms. So many of them are written by a king. There are many prayers for the king. And then all of them point beyond uh, the earthly or an earthly king to a true and better king. And we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so these are, are psalms of kingship. So the idea of, of kingship is, is what I would call, it's, it's foreign yet familiar to us. It's foreign yet familiar. It's foreign to us because most likely none of us or very, very few of us have lived in a country uh, under the rule of a king. Right? Maybe you've visited or maybe you've served overseas uh, in a nation that, that has a monarch, monarchy. That's the word I'm trying to get out of the mouth. That has a king, right? Um, so we're, we're foreign to it in, in that aspect. We haven't lived under a, a physical human king, but we're familiar with the idea of, of kingship, right? We, we understand what a king is. A king is one who rules and reigns and has a throne and is over a, a kingdom or a nation, is referred to as a sovereign or a supreme or the ultimate authority. We understand the idea of kingship. However, whether we live in you know, United States of America or a country or a nation that incorporates a human king, the reality is that the world in which we live, the culture in which we live, uh, doesn't subscribe to human kingship. It subscribes to primarily the kingship of self. 
right? That self is, is king, self rules and reigns. In fact, our very nature as humans is to either reject or at best resist authority in our lives. That's, that's human nature for us because of, of our sin nature. Uh, you even look at, uh, you know, any really many, many, many marketing campaigns in, in our world uh, today subtly or not so subtly promote this idea that, that self is king. All right, y'all are going to hate me for this first example because you're going to get the worst commercial jingle stuck in your head. It's Burger King. Y'all know it's the worst. The wor- they just decided to have the worst person singing, sing this jingle, which is the worst. Uh, and, and you know how the end of these commercials go? It's like, BK, have it your way. I'm, I could sing really, really awfully, and it'd be perfect for this moment. I won't. BK, have it your way. And then it ends with this little, you rule, which is a weird kind of contradiction, right? We're the king of burgers, but you rule. <laughs> weird. I don't know. That's contradicts, but it's a subtle thing, like, hey, you can have it however you want, you make the call, you're the king, you're the ruler, you are the one who rules, all right? Uh, there's another a campaign that was going on by uh, one of these, like, it's a clothing company called Homage, based out of Ohio, you probably haven't heard of them, but uh, they do t-shirts and all kinds of stuff. They had this campaign going in June, um, and, and, and they were promoting this, this t-shirt and this phrase, um, living my truth. Now, I understand what this whole movement and this whole thought is all about, in our world, um, but this is one of those phrases that I reject so, uh, so emphatically. I, this phrase drives me crazy. Living my truth, as if everybody has their own version of truth. I understand what it's getting at, but the reality is there can't be many, 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 many versions of truth. There, there, is, there is one truth, because think about it this way. If there were 100 people and all 100 people had their own version of truth, you know, all those versions of truth are going to end up rubbing up against one another. Just logically, it makes no sense that we could all live our own truth. Because if my truth is that I'm going to be mean and hateful and I'm going to hurt, steal, kill, hey, you, I'm going to live my truth and you can't come against that. You live your truth. I respect that. You live your truth. I live my truth. All right? And so this is, this is, again, another one of these phrases that says we reject, we resist ultimate authority, supreme authority. I am my own authority. I am king of my life. And I get it. I get it, y'all. To come under authority, to come under the rule or the authority of another person is not natural, nor is it easy. It is difficult. I don't care how old or young you are. It is difficult to come under the authority of others. But here is the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that when you and I go our own way, when we decide to make ourselves the king or the Lord, we decide that we're going to rule and decide everything, we will miss out on the joy and the peace and the fullness of life for which we were created. When we go our own way. Because the reality is only one can sit on the throne of your life. God says, I want to sit there. That is my rightful place in your life. But God and self can't sit on that same throne. There's only room for one. And so I understand that. This is the message of the Bible. Though. The message of the Bible, the message of Psalm 95, which we'll see today, is that there's a better way. There's a better way to live. We can live under the rule of a powerful uh, yet benevolent king. We can live under the rule of a powerful yet benevolent king, one who loves you, one who pursues you, one who has died for you. 
and we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to read Psalm 95. I'm going to ask you all to turn there if you've got a physical Bible. Uh, If you would stand with me, we're going to read the Word of God together. Psalm 95, we do this because we believe this is God's Word. It is truth. It is life. This is God revealing Himself and who He is to us in His Word. Uh, The Word, the Holy Word of God. And so we're going to read this together. Psalm 95, the psalmist says this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at at Meribah, uh, as on the day uh, at Massa, Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's word. Would y'all pray with me? Father, again, we just thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that we can open it, that we can read it, that we can understand who you are, what you're all about, how much you love us, how much you care for us, and yet at the same time, Lord, uh, how powerful you are, that you are king. You are a great God and a great king above all gods. And so, Lord, this morning we come to you as such. We want to hear from you. We want to, uh, as the psalmist, psalmist encourages us uh, today, that we would hear your voice and that we wouldn't harden our hearts, that we wouldn't go astray in our hearts, but God, that we would approach you, we would approach your throne with open ears and open hearts. God, allowing you to do whatever it is that you want to do in here and whatever you want to do in our hearts. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. We, we come with, with a song uh, on our lips. Uh, Lord, we bow ourselves before you. And God, we want to hear from you. So would you speak? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Why don't you have a seat? We're going to jump into Psalm 95. Let me give you a, a little bit of background. There's not a lot to give here because there is, there is no uh, author. This is one of those anonymous uh, psalms. Uh, but this group here from about Psalm 93 to 100 is kind of this group or this collection of psalms that repeats this refrain. And the refrain is, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And so you see this idea of of kingship here. In fact, several of these psalms refer to the Lord as king, as Psalm 95 does. Now, it's a pretty simple outline today. I've kind of broken the pattern. I don't have three points for you. Uh, This psalm is two parts. Very simple. it's It's worship and it's a warning. Worship, warning, worship, and warning. And so we'll look at that this morning in Psalm 95. First, we'll look at the first seven verses, worship. All right, so you see in verses 1 through 7 this worship. And, and, and what happens here starting in verse 1 is, is we see a couple times in the psalm uh, twice that the psalmist invites us to come. Come to him. Come join him in, in worship of the Lord. Look back at verses 1 and 2. It says, 
Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And so the, the, the command here, the invitation is to sing. It's to make a joyful noise, which for some of you or many of you, that may be, uh, that may be more true of your singing prowess, right? Uh, make a joyful noise. Um, joyful, all right? It may not be joyful for those around you. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's joyful to the Lord, right? A joyful noise. Twice he, he says this. Sing, make a joyful noise. Come with thanksgiving. Come with songs of praise. One of the thing that's, things that is so noticeable, if you are reading through the book of Psalms, I mean, you cannot miss this. From beginning to end, you see the centrality of singing when it comes to our faith. Singing is so central to our faith. You know, before I came to Christ, when I think about my life, you know, I came to Jesus uh, late in high school. I was a couple weeks shy of 17 years old. Prior to that point, um, you know, when I think back about singing in my life, like I remember singing sometimes in school or in my class or, you know, if I had a play or something that our, you know, our, our elementary class was a part of, we sang out. Um, actually, funny little note here. Uh, I remember being probably in second grade, and I was in a play, and I was King George, and everyone sang about King George, and so I played a king, and everyone sang to me. It was kind of, it was empowering and glorious. Um, but but after that, like as I became you know high school or a teenager, I like I, I don't, I'm, the only time I really sang was like maybe I sang in the shower, uh, maybe I sang in the car. Um, you know, um, the only time I really uh, sang with people was, you know, a few concerts that I went to, and you're singing together, but, but it was, it was uh, you know, what makes church and what makes Christianity, what makes singing in the church so different is that it's, it's worship. You're not just singing about something random, you know, pick any song that you would sing that would pop in your head and singing about whatever. It's not singing about, it's singing, or it is singing about, but it's singing to. It's singing that's directed at someone's or, or towards someone. It's directed toward the Lord. Um, it's, you know, we, when you look back at the, these verses, it says, let us make a joyful, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us make a joyful noise to him. So our, our singing is, is not just random. It's, it's directed toward the Lord, the rock of our salvation. Singing is so uh, central to our faith throughout the Bible, throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, you know, I know some people, in particular men, might have this, this beef. They would say, well, you know what, uh, I'm not really into singing. Uh, I understand that. I get that. But, you know, in the Bible, when you look at the Bible, it's interesting. Because when you look through the scriptures, what you see is that love and adoration and joy, um, it, it all pours out in, in song. It pours out in, in singing. I, I mean, you go back all the way back. What I, what I would call the, the first love song ever written or ever sung was Genesis chapter 2. When God brought Adam, his bride, Eve, and he declares, he sings out, this is at last, like he's been waiting for this moment. God has brought him, you know, from aardvark to zebra. He's brought him all these animals and Adam is naming them because mm, that's, uh, that's not the companion I'm looking for. You know what I'm saying? And then he brings them, he forms this woman out of his side and man, he belts out this song. 
at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He, he sings out um, in, in worship because of Eve. You see all throughout, again, the Bible, throughout the Psalms, that God's people sing um, to the Lord uh, w- because of their relationship with the Lord. Psalm 40, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, my favorite, favorite, favorite Psalm. The very first piece of scripture my eyes laid hold upon uh, as a young teenager. Psalm 40, it says this in verses 1 through 3. David, the psalmist here, the king, says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, which John talked about a couple weeks ago. This pit, he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He, He put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is like from the very start, the psalmist says, man, God rescued me out of this pit. He set my feet upon a rock. And you know what he did after that? He put a song, a new song in my mouth. It was a song of praise to our God. And so from the very moment that we come to Christ, it says that the Lord puts a song in our mouth, in our heart, and it comes out through our mouth. Uh, You see the angels, you see at the very end in Revelation 4, uh, present day and throughout all of eternity, the the angels are around the throne of of God, singing and worshiping, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. From the beginning, from Genesis 2 to Revelation, the the very end of the Bible, singing is all all throughout. Uh, Let me give you one more example of, of singing in the Bible. The Lord sings over you. The Lord sings over us. He says he will exult over you with loud singing. Listen, when the Lord thinks of you and I, he sings over us with loud singing. It's not this like, um, there's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today, and we won't be quiet, (laughs) right? He's loud. He's singing at the top of our lungs. I should have broken out my BK voice there. Um, He will exalt over you with loud singing at the top of his lungs. He sings over us. And so, y'all, you can say, well, I'm not really into singing. But the Lord has put a song in your mouth. If he's changed your life and your heart, he's put a song in you. And the Lord deserves uh, to, to hear us sing over him with loud singing, with loud loud singing. He goes on, the psalmist, in verses 3 to 5, and he gives our, our reason for, for singing, our reason to sing. Verse 3 says, for the Lord. So anytime you see the word for, it's kind of this grounding statement. Here's the reason why, what we just saw in the first couple of verses. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The reason we can sing, or the reason for us to sing, is because he's king over all of creation. He is king over all of, of creations. Whether you love the mountains or the coast, it says it's, he's made it all. And it's all in his hands. That's another word I introduced to you a few weeks ago, an anthropomorphism, right? It's crediting or assigning to God this human quality. Like God doesn't have physical hands, but yet I imagine him, like it says, forming the dry land. Like he was all in and he was intimate and he's personal in everything that he created, including you and me. 
He is king of all creation, all the heights and the depths. He owns it all, is what the scriptures say. And so because of that, we sing. We can sing to him. He is a great God. He is a great king. He's over all other gods. He is over all creation, the heights and the depths. And so this is what we do. As citizens of the kingdom, we sing to our king. This is what the psalmist calls us to. And there's, there's a second invitation here in verse 6. Here's the second invitation to come, uh, to, to worship. In verse number 6, he says this, O come, and this is the exact same start as verse number 1, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This is that second invitation to come and worship. The first time it was to come and to sing with joy. Remember to make a joyful noise. This time, the invitation is not to sing, it's to submit. It's to bow down before. It's to kneel before the Lord, our maker. There's this invitation to come and and worship and and bow down and kneel. This, this speaks of humility and submission. It, it has the imagery of, of coming into the, the throne room or the presence of, of a king. And coming before the throne, what you do is you, you take a knee. You show reverence to the king. And this is the imagery that the psalmist uses here in Psalm 95. And so our submission to the Lord, our bowing our knee to him is... And I want you to, to think about this. When we think about worship, we think about singing. Yes, it is. When we give, that's an act of worship. When we listen and receive the word, that is an act of worship. But when we submit to the Lord, that is an act of worship. When we say, God, I'm going to do it your way. I'm not going to have it my way. I'm going to do what you have instructed me in your word. Even if I don't understand it, even if it, it's difficult to do in this moment, when we submit to God, that is an act of worship. That is saying, you are the king, and I am not. And so, God, I bow. I kneel to you, and I submit to your, your way, knowing that your way is better than mine. So our submission to the Lord is an act of worship. Also, I'll say this, that it's our submission to the Lord is evidence that we are a follower of Christ. When we submit to the Lord, it's evidence that we are a follower of Christ. Can I say this? If... if if you look at somebody's life and you see a lack of submitting to the Lord, like God has told me to do this, but I'm not going to do this. I question if you even belong to Jesus, if you've even given your life to Jesus. Because one of the marks of a follower, of someone who's part of the kingdom, is I submit to the king. I submit to him. Submission to the Lord, submission to the king, is evidence that we belong to Christ So, verse number 7, he goes on to say this, the very first part of verse 7. The psalmist, uh, again, says, For he is our God. Here is the grounding here. For, what's our reason for submitting? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Why should we submit? Because he is king, not just over all creation, but he is king over his people. He is king over his people. His people. And I don't know if you noticed this, that you know, earlier it talked about, um, it talked about the Lord with, with these articles. Like, he is a great God. He is a great king. But then there's this kind of transition here 
where it says, bow down before him. Why? Because it starts using not articles, not generic articles like a and the. It starts using possessive pronouns like our. He is our maker. He's not just the maker. He is our maker. He is our God. We are the sheep, uh, the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. We are his sheep. We are his people. It becomes personal here. And so he is creator of all, yes, yet he is my maker. He is king above all gods, yet he is my shepherd, right? He is powerful, I love this, yet he is personal. This isn't just this distant great God and great king over all all gods. No, he is my God. He is our God. He is our maker. And so this is what we do as citizens of the kingdom. We sing to the king and we submit to the king. We sing to the king and we submit to our king. So this is these first seven verses. It's just Chock full of worship, right? We, we sing to the Lord. We submit to the Lord. And then there's this, this kind of quick transition, like right in the middle of verse 7. It moves into a warning, right? So we've been, we've been worshiping here. The psalmist has been inviting us to come and to sing, to lift up a joyful noise, to come and bow before the Lord, to kneel before him. And now there's a, a warning in verse number, starting in verse number 7. In fact, let me go ahead and read again verses 7 through 11. For he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Here's where the warning begins. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, there are people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, says the Lord, they shall not enter my rest. So this this warning begins with uh, an important Bible phrase that we see several times throughout the scriptures. The phrase is this, today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice. I want to read you a couple of quotes in regards to this particular phrase. One is, first one is from Christopher Ashe. He says this, Today cries the same voice, talking about the, the voice of the psalmist. Today cries the same voice because the day when the people of God hear the word of God is always today. There is an existential immediacy to this. It is never a matter for yesterday or for tomorrow such that I can leave it behind or put it on the back burner for today. No, it is always today. It is always urgent to listen. No matter how many times I may have heard in the past, no matter how often I may come to hear again in the future, it is now that matters. So there's this urgency, this immediacy. Like, listen, if you hear his voice today, pay attention, listen up. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Today, if you will hear his voice, is, is the phrase. Dreadful if many would not hear, they put off their claims, uh, the claims of love, provoke their God. Today, in the hour of grace, in the day of mercy, we are tried as to whether we have an ear for the voice of our Creator. Nothing is said of tomorrow. He limits us a certain day. He presses for immediate attention. For our own sakes, He asks, 
instantaneous obedience. Shall we yield it? The Holy Ghost saith today, will we grieve him by delay? I don't know if Charles Spurgeon was a poet, but man, he came across as a good one there, right? Today, today, speaking about this very moment, not yesterday, not tomorrow, today, if you will hear his voice. This is an important phrase in the scriptures. And so the psalmist here, I don't know if you noticed, in verse number seven, he says, uh, today, if you hear his voice, verse number eight, do not harden your hearts. And he goes back and refers to their fathers and how they hardened their hearts and how they went astray in their hearts um, towards the Lord. And, And what you see in the psalmist, there's this transition from worship where he's calling us to come and make noise, right? And then there's this warning where he's, he, he, he tells us to shut your mouths and open your ears. Don't make any noise anymore. Listen up if you hear his voice. Today, if you hear his voice. And at verse 8 through 11, you, we see this passage. It's, it's connected to a few others throughout the scriptures. Okay, let me just, let me just refer to a, a few of them. One is, is, is back in Exodus 17, where Israel is, has been delivered by God from, from, from Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, but man, it's a long journey, and they're frustrated, they're tired, they're hungry, they're thirsty. They're thirsty, and they grumble against Moses, their leader, like, Moses, why don't we have water to drink? What kind of leader are you? Let us go back to where we came from because, man, you're not, this is not cutting it. And they grumble against the Lord. Verse number 7 of Exodus 17, he, the Lord, called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means strife or contention. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see what they were saying? The people were grumbling against Moses. They're like, "Is, is God actually with us? Is he powerful enough to do something? Man, they were angry. They were frustrated because God didn't seem to be working and doing what he wanted them to do. And so they grumbled. They tested. They provoked that there was contention. They tested the Lord in his faithfulness to them. They were grumbling out. This is what Psalm 95 refers to. Their fathers who grumbled in the wilderness. This, this passage in Psalm 95 also refers back to uh, Numbers chapter 14 where you know, God says, hey, this generation that's been grumbling, that's been fighting against me, man, they're not going to enter into the promised land. Save Caleb and, and Joshua, the rest of them, they're not going to enter in. They're not going to enter in. And, and then Hebrews 3 is another passage in the New Testament that refers to this, this whole story. And, and here's, here's one, one verse in, in Hebrews 3, verse 19. Hebrews 3 and 4 kind of refers to this whole story back in the Old Testament. It says this, so we see that they were unable, unable to enter because of unbelief. In other words, God said, you can't go into the promised land. You've been making this journey. I've promised this good and, and, and fruitful land for you, but y'all, you're not going to get to enter in. You're not, it's going to be your kids. It's going to be the next generation, but you're not going to step foot in this. Why? Hebrews tells us it's because of unbelief. The grumbling represented, man, we don't really believe that God is who he says he is, that God is powerful. This is why they're like, is the Lord among us or not? It was unbelief that kept them from entering into the promised land. 
And so what, what's going on here is God says, hey, they tested me. That generation tested me. They provoked me. Their hearts have, have gone astray. In fact, I want you to just go back to verse number eight and following. He says, don't harden your hearts as your fathers did. Uh, verse number nine, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. They actually witnessed me deliver them through the Red Sea. They saw miraculous work but they still questioned, they still grumbled, they still put me to the test. They said, God, prove yourself to us. Verse number 10, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore they shall not enter my rest. So there's kind of this two-sided warning here where, where the psalmist says, okay, hear his voice today, if you'll hear his voice, take it to heart. If you hear my voice, if you hear me speaking, listen up. Take what I'm saying to heart. And then there's, that's kind of the positive like, side of, of this warning. But then there's a negative side. The negative side is this. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Don't go astray in your hearts. Why? Because this is the opposite of what the psalmist calls us to do. The psalmist calls us to come and worship. The psalmist calls us to come and submit to him. But we won't ever sing to him and we won't ever submit to him if our hearts are far from him. We'll never do that. And, you know, we say this over and over and over and over and over and we'll continue to say this, that God wants our hearts. He doesn't want just your external obedience. He wants your heart. And this is why he says, hey, if you hear me, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Don't let your heart go astray, like go off in some other direction. Listen up. Take my word to heart. Pay attention. He says this. Here's more proof that he wants our hearts. He says, this people, they, they saw my works, but... They don't know my ways. In other words, what God is saying is, I don't want you to just know what I can do. I want you to know who I am, my ways, my character, my nature. I want you to know who I am. I want your heart. This is the warning. This is the warning here. Later in, in, in Hebrews 3 and, and 4, the writer of Hebrews, he interprets this word today as anytime someone hears God, the call from God to repent, to turn from their ways to, to, to him. It, the writer of Hebrews interprets the word rest in Hebrews 3 and 4 as, as eternal salvation and ultimate rest in Christ. And this is the warning of Psalm 95, that if you hear his voice today, don't turn and go your own way. Don't turn and do your own thing. Don't turn your heart away from what the Lord is saying to you. Come, come in faith. Bend your knee to Christ. Let him give you rest. You know, Jesus is the one who said, hey, come to me and I will give you rest. You who labor and are heavy laden, I am the one who will give you rest. The gospel is, is this that we can come, no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, no matter what we've done, no matter how worthy or unworthy we think we are, we can all come to the feet of Jesus and he will receive us. He invites us to come. He invites every single one of us every single day to bow our knee 
and to bend our knee and our heart towards him. And that's it. The psalm ends kind of abruptly there, Psalm 95. And so how do we live in, in light of all that we see in, in Psalm 95? Well, I want to put it in this phrase kind of as the big idea this morning. The best way to live is in joyful submission to the King of Kings. The best way to live is in joyful submission to the King of Kings. And I want to emphasize those two words, joyful submission. Joyful submission. Can you all say that, those two words with me? Here we go. Joyful submission. Joyful submission. You may have never heard or used those two words combined, but y'all, I'm telling you, this is the key to, to this and living the way we ought to live. Joyful submission. I can submit with joy to this God who is both powerful and personal. I can submit to a God who knows and loves me. It's a joy and a blessing. It's not a burden. It's not a curse. Joyful submission. Joyful submission. So l- let, me, let me kind of flesh this out for, for a minute. I think there's at least, there's probably way more than this, but there's at least three ways that our hearts respond to God. Probably respond to any authority, but I'm just going to talk specifically about the way our heart responds to the Lord and his authority in our life. So I'm going to give you three little phrases here. The first one is this, blatant disregard. All right, y'all know what blatant disregard is, right? It's just like, no, I don't care. Uh, I'm fully opposed. I'm resistant, both inwardly and outwardly. I just, no, I have nothing to do with this. I don't want this. So blatant disregard. So sometimes our hearts respond to the Lord by saying, mm, nope. I'm not going to do it. I don't care. I don't care what you say. I don't care who you say you are. I'm not going to do it. Blatant disregard. Here, here's a second one. It's uh, dutiful compliance. Dutiful compliance. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've experienced dutiful compliance. Like, I don't want to do this. I know I need to. I know I ought to. I, I know I should. Right? And so we do it. It's this idea of doing what's expected or required. It's the idea of I have to, I have to, all right? Which, if we're being honest, for many of us, a lot of our Christian life falls under this category. Unfortunately, it's good to be compliant and follow the Lord, but that dutiful thing means my heart really isn't in it. I'm just doing it because I know I ought to. But here's the third, the third category, and it's what we've already talked about, joyful submission, joyful submission. I'm going to submit. I'm going to comply. But it's not because I have to. It's because what? I get to. It's a joy. It's a privilege to do this. It's freely, gladly, humbly putting yourself under the care of the Lord. It's freely, gladly, humbly putting yourself under the care of the Lord. So let me give you a real Um, personal, practical application. So two years ago, last month, um, I went skydiving for the second time in my life. Um, I'll show you a picture here of me. I took uh, my oldest son, Isaiah, uh, skydiving um, because he wanted to do that on his 18th birthday. Um, A couple months, in a few months here, I'll be taking Aiden uh, skydiving as well for time number three. I went on my 40th birthday. I went on uh, Isaiah's 18th. I'll take Aiden on his 18th, probably Ridge on his 18th. I don't know. Uh, Blakeney maybe on her 18th. Um, I don't know. Big eyeballs right there. Um, 
So put that picture up on the screen there. We've got this picture. So this is, uh, I don't even remember this guy's name, but he was strapping me in. Um, and if, if y'all have never done this, this is tandem skydiving where uh, basically this guy is attached to my back, right? So he straps me up, uh, better be getting that nice and, and tight and firm and getting me all cinched up. And then he attaches himself to uh, my back, which typically I reject that outright when anybody wants to do that. But in this case, I'm like, please do it, do it right, all right? Uh, my life is in your hands. Uh, and so, you know, he straps, you know, he's strapped on my back. It's, it's a very weird thing trying to, you know, get into a plane and scoot back on a bench with a dude on your back. Uh, very weird. Never have practiced that, but, you know, you do it. Um, so let me give you these three categories, for example. So blatant disregard. Some of you, when you think of this scenario, you're like, uh-uh. <laughs> like, how many of you would say, never, ever, ever, I will never do that? Just out of curiosity. Okay. All right blatant disregard. You're like, I don't care if you said it's safe and it's fun. No, not going to do it. Okay. So a lot of you in that category. Um, Here's the second category, which is where I was, dutiful compliance. All right. Dutiful compliance. So this guy was a stranger. I didn't, I can't even remember his name. Uh, The first guy that I jumped with, his name was uh, OJ. I remember his name. Um, This guy, I don't remember. He was not very personable. And so I was like, I don't know if this guy hates his life, or if he hates me, or if he hates his job. I hope he doesn't hate his job, right? <laughs> but like, dutiful compliance, I'm like, I don't know you, I don't know, like, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you because I have no other option, all right? Dutiful compliance. But then there's that like joyful submission, which if I knew this guy, like, if I had a guy who was stronger than anyone I knew, and I think this guy was a, he was a pretty, I want to use the, word, the phrase for the second week in a row, he was a pretty strapping lad, you know, he was, he, like, I wasn't nervous about his strength, but, you know, your strength in midair is really irrelevant, right? Um, but if I knew a guy who was way stronger than anyone I knew, but also loved me more than anybody else I knew, it would have been joyful submission, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can trust you because I know you care about me. I know you, ha- you have the knowledge and the ability and the strength to see me safely through this, but I also know you care about me, right? Sadly, for some of us, our life is that dutiful compliance. Like, we're just like, okay, God, I know you've said this is true. I know you've said this is how life works best. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but okay. I have no other choice. Y'all, that is, that is a sad way to live. That is why so many people turn their backs on the church, turn their backs on the Lord, because all they've ever known is church life, Christianity that says, I do this because I'm told. I do this because I have to. I do this because I ought to. I do this because I should. It's not joyful submission. But y'all, there's something so powerful and beautiful about joyful submission. Like, I'm going to do this not because I have to, because I get to. I have a God who owns the heights and the depths, and yet he is my maker. He is my shepherd. He cares about me, and he loves me. I can joyfully submit to that kind of king. Amen? This is joyful submission. This is what he calls us to. Let me read a quote, and then we're going to wrap up. Uh, Augustine, in a, you know, one of the early church fathers, uh, it's, it looks like it's, it's pronounced Augustine. It's pronounced Augustine, just to give you all a theological lesson here. Um, Augustine said this, Without exception, all, everyone, all humans try their hardest to reach the same goal. That is joy. All human beings are, are, are trying to find joy. Uh, 
in all kinds of, of different ways. We see that in our culture today in a big way. I just want to be happy. I just want to have joy. I would argue that full joy doesn't come without submission to the Lord who is our maker, who has created us. This is the best way to live, in joyful submission to Jesus, the King of Kings. Of course, this impacts the way we submit to other authority in our lives, the way we respond to human, earthly authority. Um, and that's a whole nother subject, right, for us to tackle um, because it feels rare to have an authority in our lives that we can joyfully submit to. I understand that. Um, but you can joyfully submit to Christ while struggling to submit to human authority. In fact, I would say that the beginning place to submit to all earthly authority is joyful submission to the Lord. So let me just end with this question. Are you living in joyful submission to Jesus Christ? Are you living in joyful submission to Jesus Christ? My hope is your answer would be yes. But you know what? Today, if you'll hear his voice, maybe God is speaking to you. Maybe you need to do some repenting today. Maybe you need to turn to the Lord. Maybe you need to stop going your way. Maybe you've never submitted your life, your eternity to this one who owns the heights and the depths, who wants to forgive you of all of your sin and cleanse you and make you new. Are you living in joyful submission to Jesus Christ?